Recorded by The Way in Brea. Lead pastor Von Jarrett has a heart for the people at The Way and a desire to reach the lost. The Way's production department prays this message is a blessing to you and that you find yourself closer to God through application. So this is different. Uh, welcome to our first live broadcast service here at The Way. <laughs> uh, we'll see how this goes. Obviously, if we have any technical difficulties, uh, we'll be recording our audio like normal, so that'll be available and posted as soon as we finish up here this morning, guys. Um, for those that are watching, um, uh, contact us, whether uh, through the broadcast or the next couple of days, and let us know how this was for you, and uh, if there's ways that we can improve or if there's issues, please let us know. About 10 years ago, I preached a message titled Preaching to the Choir, and uh, today I'm literally preaching to the choir. <laughs> if you guys could see what, what I see right now, it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, on the flip side of that, though, being able to be in worship uh, and have a worship service, I'm grateful for that. And... Uh, all to, uh, all to myself, basically, this morning. Uh, so we want all of our members to know, uh, if you're out there and you're watching and, and listening, that uh, we miss you dearly. It's only been a week, but I'm sure for, for many of you, it feels the same as it feels for me, where it feels like it's been a long time. So we want you to know that we love you, we miss you, we plan on engaging you this week um, via email, via text, in the app, phone calls, FaceTime, and uh, being able to catch up, being able to pray together. And uh, so we're looking forward to that as this week goes on. We recognize uh, that it's a challenging time in the world um, and in every individual life. But I want to remind our members and those of you that might be watching uh, about the importance of our faithfulness to the Lord. Uh, the importance of caring for one another uh, in every area, and uh, specifically right now, like we typically do when we start a service, I also want to remind us of uh, the importance of being faithful financially. I think one of the reasons uh, the tithe is so important is that we learn how to live week after week as we give and as we uh, manage our finances. What we do teaches us how to be prepared uh, for times when we have abundance, when we have everything we want, everything that we need, and also for times where we have a lack, where there just doesn't seem uh, to be enough. The idea that the Lord is establishing in us is this idea of peace, a peace that surpasses understanding. Uh, we sang this song this morning that uh, the Lord makes the darkness tremble, right? He gives us peace and he casts out fear. So I want to encourage you to continue to be faithful, uh, continue to give uh, be extra willing to care for those who are in need. There are a lot of people who are in need right now, uh, unexpected un, uh, in many, many ways. 
meet the needs of your family, meet the needs of your friends, your neighbors. That might be food uh, shortly here. That might be shelter for people that don't have a place. Uh, that might be water. Uh, right now, things seem to be okay. Uh, and it might be toilet paper. We're out of toilet paper everywhere. So meet the needs, care for each other. Don't withhold, give. So for, uh, for our members, you guys already know, go to the website, thewayccc.com, or go to the app. Uh, if you don't have the app, The Way Brea, uh, search that in your app store. You'll be able to find it. So our scripture for, for tithe and offering this morning, Philippians 4.11, Paul says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere, and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, as Christians, many of us love this Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but we forget the context that Paul is talking about being able to live when you have all your needs met and being able to, need when, or being able to li uh, live when you're suffering and when you don't have all of your needs met. So in this season, especially for Christians, uh, let us be faithful. Let us remember that uh, we can do all things through Christ. That includes giving. So I want to pray over uh, tithe, over offering, over our service, over uh, uh, our finances, those who are watching over your finances, and we'll move on. So Lord, we thank you um, that in such a time as this, that you've even given us an opportunity to be able to be in your word, to be able to be connected, uh, to be able to uh, uh, still gather in a unique way, Lord. We ask that you would uh, continue to meet the needs, Lord. Um, there's so many of us uh, throughout the world right now who are suffering, Lord, who are losing jobs, uh, who don't have enough to eat, who don't have uh, just the regular necessities met, Lord God, but you have established a church, Lord, that will love, that will give, that will continue to intercede on the behalf of those who have need, Lord God, physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, in every way, Lord God. I ask that you would uh, bring peace that surpasses understanding, Lord, that uh, you would teach us uh, a little bit more about how to live and how to be faithful in this season uh, that we're going through, Lord God. I thank you for this service. I thank you for an opportunity to be in your word, Lord, to be sharing your word, Lord, to be reminded of the things that matter most, I thank you for all the other churches that are meeting in, uh, in different ways uh, this very moment, this very uh, morning here and across the world, Lord God. I thank you that you can come into homes, that uh, your word is alive and it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, that it can penetrate and it can change and transform atmospheres and lives, Lord God. So we just ask that you would be with us, that you would have your hand upon this message as I share it this morning, Lord God, that you would have your hand upon your sons and your daughters who are out there listening, Lord God. I pray that you would awaken hearts and awaken minds, Lord God, that those that would hear this, Lord Jesus, those that would see this, Lord God, those that are hearing any of your word as it gets proclaimed this morning, Lord Jesus, that, uh, that you would quicken them, Lord God, that you would call them into life, Lord, and into a deeper relationship with you. So have your way. We love you. We are grateful. We worship you. We praise you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen? Amen. Those of you who are actually here from the worship team, uh, we're going to pay you to say amen really, really loud and make it feel like there's a grip of people here. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so our church has been in a series titled The Archetype, and uh, for all of 2020, actually, and today, after 12 weeks, 
Uh, we've reached the final message in the series, and the series is built around Carl Jung. He had this uh, presentation of 12 archetypes of, of types of people, and he presented this back in the 1800s, and we've been looking at how these 12 different archetypes, how Jesus encompasses all of them, but also how Jesus uh, is the the uh, fulfillment or the greatest version, the perfect version of each of these types of, our, uh, of people, these archetypes. So let me give you the definition. Webster's definition of an archetype says, it's the original pattern or the model of which all of the same type are representations or copies of. The archetype is most commonly used to mean a perfect example of something. So in the series, we've declared that Jesus is the archetype of humanity. He's not just the archetype of a particular type of person, but man himself, right? Jesus is the perfect man. He's the original. He's the archetype. He's what it really means to be human. And we've tried to look at the similarities between Jesus, the archetype, and all the good and bad copies or representations of, of this uh, son of God. But we've also tried to look at the unique ways in which Jesus is far beyond what any copy is capable of. So quickly, here's what we've covered so far. We've looked at the caregiver in week one, that Jesus comes uh, to care for us, to meet our needs, right? How he uh, will serve us. One of the things we talked about in week one is that Jesus allowed himself to be cared for. And it's one of the issues that we have as believers is that it's difficult for us to allow Jesus to actually serve us. When we come into a relationship with him, we want to serve him. We want to love him. We want to give. But we know that Jesus, not only did he serve and, and wash his disciples' feet and, and meet the needs of others, but he allowed himself to be prayed over. He allowed himself to be anointed. He allowed himself uh, to be fed, all different types of things. And the, the, the challenge that went out that first week was that we would also learn how to allow Jesus to serve us and to care for us. In week two, we looked at Jesus, the rebel, how he didn't just go along with the things that the church was doing. He came in and he said, I know what the church is supposed to be doing. It's my father's house. So if you're doing something that's contrary, just because I'm Jewish doesn't mean I'm going to fall in line with everybody else. I can rebel against that, right? And I can, I can set things the right way. So Jesus was a rebel. Uh, and the archetype of that, we looked at even with his parents, they were looking for him. He, he stayed back at the temple. He told his parents, I had to be about my father's business. He rebelled. But he didn't do it in a way that was dishonoring. Right after that, he left with his family and continued to go back uh, with his parents. We looked at uh, Jesus, the archetype of the creator. And we talked about how he created all things, but he created all things for us. He didn't need any of the things that he's created for us. He did that, that we would be able to see who he is, that we would be able to enjoy these things, that we would be able to be drawn to him. This archetype, whatever creativity we have in us, it comes from him. And he's the, uh, the epitome of that. In week four, we looked at the magician, and we talked about how we as humans love uh, for people to convince us and try to suspend reality for us, right? We want to believe that what we're, what we're seeing is real, but in the back of our minds, we know that it's smoke and mirrors. We know that it's not real. We know that we're, we're being tricked and we're allowing ourselves to be tricked. But we looked at the archetype, and what Jesus does is there's no smoke and mirrors, right? It's actual miracles. He's suspending reality on our behalf, uh, He's amazing that way. Uh, in week five, we looked at the orphan. And this one to me was, uh, was really special, this idea that uh, Jesus is the archetype of the orphan, 
right? He has uh, caretakers. He has an earthly mother. He has an earthly father. But he's really separated from his true father who's in heaven. So he lived his life uh, with that separation. He lived his life uh, recognizing that eventually he would go back and be reunited to his father. Eventually, uh, he would be where he longs to be. And uh, this idea that uh, those of us that have experienced anything like that, that we have a, a God that we can turn to that recognizes. In week six, we looked at the explorer. And how Jesus was from uh, Nazareth and in Galilee, but he would go out to these other cities, go out to the, to the outskirts, and he would minister to people. That he wasn't uh, just confined to a small group or a small geographical area. That something inside of him said, I'm going to go out further. I'm going to reach other people. I'm going to reach other cultures and, uh, and share the good news with them. And, and oftentimes when he would go to these places, his, his own disciples would say, why are we talking to them? Or why are we spending time here? And he was trying to teach them this idea of having to go out and to reach others. In week seven, uh, back at Valentine's Day, we looked at Jesus, the archetype of the lover. And we talked about what it means to love and what it means to be loved. How we have Jesus, who was uh, never married, didn't have kids, and yet he's the archetype and the epitome of love. And we talked about how narrow our definition of love is, right? What we think of when we think about love and how he expands that. Uh, and the ways that he loves us and how we should be looking for love in a different way when it comes to, to God than how we look for it oftentimes in our lives and in our relationships. In week, week eight, we looked at the jester or the joker and this idea that Jesus has a sense of humor, right? And that he is uh, the archetype of that, that when we laugh and when we find things funny, when we find things uh, Interesting that we get that from him. We talked about some of the scriptures where, where uh, God will reveal himself to people, where God will uh, use a donkey to talk to somebody, right? Things that I just think are, are hilarious. In week number uh, nine, we looked at the sage and the wise man, and we talked about how um, so many of us have these people that we turn to for advice, people that we turn to for information, people that we look to to give us direction. And we talked about, well, what makes them worthy of directing us? What makes them wise? And we looked at Jesus as the sage and as the archetype. And what we came down to is that uh, what it means to be a sage, what it means to be a wise man or a wise woman is about your understanding of the word of God and the person of God. With Jesus, when he's advising, when he's talking, when he's leading, when he's 12 years old and he's, and he's in the temple and they're asking him, how do you understand the things of God? It's not about age. It's about this wisdom when it comes to the things of God. It's not about having some new or novel idea or things that you want people to be involved in. It's about going back to the things that God has already said, having discernment and being able to share that with people. And Jesus is the archetype of that. Even when he was uh, um, doing his earthly ministry, uh, they would often say, how does he know these things? And how does he teach them and preach them with such authority? In week number 10, we looked at the hero and the archetype of the hero being Christ, how he saves in a way that's so different and so unique than the ways that others save, right? We talked about how when a fireman comes and, and saves you, from a burning house, their idea is how quickly can we get you uh, out of this house and to safety? But the issue there is that that fireman dis disappears and you're going to need to be saved again and again and again in different stages of your life for different reasons. And how Jesus, uh, when he saves, he saves completely, but also he doesn't always try to take us to safety. Sometimes he'll come into the fire with you. 
Sometimes he'll leave you in the physical circumstances to do something uh, um, in a saving way in the uh, spiritual realm. What a great hero he is. And then last week, our final week, catching us up, we looked at Jesus, the archetype of the innocent. What we talked about is how none of us are innocent. None of us know anybody innocent. So even the concept of the innocent is really hard for us to understand. We looked at uh, the scripture where Jesus is on the cross and he's got uh, uh, two others to the sides of him. And one of the criminals says, we're up here and we deserve to be up here, but this man has done nothing wrong. The idea that in his whole life, he's done nothing wrong. He's completely innocent. And rather than defending himself, uh, he willingly allows himself to be crucified for the guilty. Um, what an amazing God that we serve. So this morning, we're going to finish up the series, and I don't think we could have picked a better archetype to look at in our current global situation. Uh, I know that God knew exactly where we'd be, where the world would be today on March 22nd. When he gave us this series at the end of last year, when he gave us the order for the series at the end of last year, uh, he knew already that we'd be here talking about what we're going to be talking about. Um, so we're going to look at Jesus, the archetype of the ruler, the archetype of the ruler. Revelation chapter one, verse three says, blessed is he who reads those who hear the words of this prophecy and those who keep these things which are written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is the archetype of the ruler. He says, I'm the Alpha and the, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the pierced one, and he's the ruler over all principalities, having dominion and authority. So a few things that I want to look at. The first this morning is the ruler and the temple. The ruler and the temple. Rulers either want to be worshipped, or they want to build grand temples and monuments. In our day and age, they build these monuments, they build airports, they build buildings and skyscrapers that have their name on them so that they can be remembered as time goes on. The idea is that rulers either want to be a god, they want to be deity, or they want to build something that's going to live long after them so that they can be remembered and continue to have some form of this, this glory generation after generation. If you look back at the history, you can see the Roman Colosseum. You can see the Egyptian pyramids. You can look at uh, even today, if you fly from here in California where we are, if you fly to New York, you'll fly into JFK, John F. Kennedy Airport, right? So that we can remember him. If you uh, look at some of the rulers of today, they're worshiped even in our Colosseums of today, right? Our sports venues. So what happens? Look at how shocked the world is right now when God presses pause on the worldwide sports, right? 
Everybody's shocked. What do we do? There's no heroes. There's no TV. There's no game on. Our rulers of today are also worshipped on Fox News, on CNN, on BBC, right? So the world's shocked when we realize that many of our rulers are ill-equipped to deal with some of the things that we're experiencing right now with these tragedies. So here's what I want to do. Like we've been doing in the rest of this series, we're going to look at an Old Testament example and see if we can find this idea of the ruler and the temple first off. So 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 13 says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar at Gibeon. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or how to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing, then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words and see, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all of your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So here we have King Solomon and this idea of him being a ruler and this idea of him building the temple of God. Right off the bat, what we see is Jesus is the ruler who loves God with no exceptions. When I started that scripture, it says that uh, Solomon uh, loved the Lord, walked in his statutes, just like the, his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Jesus has no exceptions when it comes to his ability to love the Father. Jesus has no exceptions in what it means to walk in the statutes of the Lord. He's the archetype. Solomon's the best that the world has to offer. That's what the Lord says, right? There's not been anybody like you. There won't be anybody like you after you go. Uh, but still, he's pretty far off of the archetype. His main issue for Solomon, he's a ruler, he's a king, is that he kind of worships other gods and does pagan rituals. Think about that for a second. His main issue, his main problem is that he's following the statutes, he loves God, his father David taught him what to do, but he offers burnt incense on high places on these other altars to these other gods. Solomon in his life ends up with multiple wives, multiple concubines, and that's another message for another day, but 
the root of unfaithfulness, when you have that in your life, right? Solomon was a lover of God, but he was unfaithful to God. That root will show up in other areas of our lives. We'll be unfaithful in many other ways. And we see that with this particular ruler. The next thing we see here is that the ruler, the true ruler, who's God, he blesses his subjects regardless of their merit, regardless of whether or not they deserve to be blessed. When God reveals himself to Solomon, like I said, he's already semi-unfaithful. He's got these other issues, but God reveals himself and he says, I'm still going to bless you. Ask me what you want and I'm going to give it to you. Why is that? Why would God still reveal himself, bless him beyond his wildest dreams? This happens because the important thing is who the ruler is rather than who the ruled are. It's not about who Solomon is. It's about who God is. He reminds us that we have life because of him, not because of us. We have blessings because he's a blesser, not because we deserve them, right? And we have hope not because we're naturally hopeful people, but because God imparts hope into us. During this season, I've been, I've been finding it interesting when you run into people who are hopeful, when you run into people who are joyful, when you run into people who are still uh, expecting good things to happen. Th people aren't naturally hopeful. It's something that God, as the ruler says, I can impart hope into you, whether you deserve it or not. Whether you were uh, uh, a better person than the person next to you, none of that matters. What matters is who God is and what he chooses to do as ruler. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 says, This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. <laughs> Those who deny Christ will be denied by Christ, right? We get that. But listen to what it actually says. It says that if you've come to Christ, if you've given your life to him, right, but you find yourself falling short, you find yourself being unfaithful, you find yourself tripping, tripping and stumbling throughout your walk, it says that he is going to remain faithful. Why? Because it's about who he is and not who we are. He's the ruler and he's established how he is going to rule us in love and in faithfulness, regardless of whether we deserve it or not. Just like we see with Solomon in this encounter that he has with the true ruler. So Solomon actually did some really good things as a ruler. He built the temple for the true God to be worshipped, right? Solomon also ruled with a focus on the people rather than his focus on himself. I think that's wonderful. You can see that here. He did, the best of, uh, he did this to the best of his ability, and he fell way short of archetype status, but God uses, his, uses him anyway, right? God uses Solomon, God uses presidents, God uses all rulers, right, whether they're a good example or a bad example, to draw us to the archetype of the real ruler. We're supposed to look at these rulers and say, okay, what do they have that in its ultimate form I can only find in Christ? Or what are they lacking that I shouldn't be looking to them for, but I should be looking to Christ for this as the ruler, right? I think we find that in Solomon. History moves on, and Solomon's temple is constantly being destroyed and rebuilt, and bigger and bigger and bigger. It remains, though, throughout time, the epicenter of all things Jewish, all things godly, 
So let's see what the archetype has to say. Jesus comes on the scene, and now he's going to look at this temple uh, that Solomon built, established, right? This is John chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the changers' money, overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you Show to us, since you do these things. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So what do we see? We see that, number one, Jesus has a love and a reverence and a passion for the temple or for the house of God. He also makes this claim, though, at the same time that he's going to destroy it and rebuild it, but rebuild it once and for all, right? This particular group of leaders says this version of the temple has taken us 46 years to build, but they've been building the temple and rebuilding the temple, and it gets destroyed, and they get taken into captivity, and they come back and build it again. They're constantly rebuilding it, this monument, right, this temple uh, that's supposed to outlive the king that built it. And then Jesus says, I love the temple. It's a place of honor and a place of reverence. However, I'm going to destroy it and rebuild it one more time. This will be the last time. He's the archetype. There's something different about what he's doing than what every other ruler and authority has been doing when it comes to the temple. Rulers raise up buildings to worship God, but the archetype says he's going to raise up a body that worshipers will have to enter into in order to worship God. He's taking it above and beyond what any other ruler has been able to do. As if that's not enough and not far enough, let's look what else Jesus uh, says in the New Testament about, about the temple, right? He comes and says, I'm tearing it down. It's no longer going to be a building that you have to enter into. My body will be um, raised, and you'll have to enter in to worship God through me. And then if you like John 3.16, hopefully you love 1 Corinthians 3.16. It says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So look at this. Not only do we have to be in Christ uh, after the archetype comes and reveals this to us, he says, uh, when I raise my body up, you won't be going back into this temple to worship God. You'll have to come into me and through me if you want to worship God. But then he says, you are also the temple of God, right? And the spirit dwells in you, which means uh, I'm going to have to be in you as well if you're going to worship God. He's ruling and reigning on a whole nother level. This truth that, that Jesus is revealing, all other rulers have fallen short of it. Um, all others who are looking to either be worshipped as deity or to have this, um, this lineage that, that follows after them, these monuments, uh, it convolutes, 
right? And it hides the truth about what real worship is and uh, what a ruler is there to do. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, this is Jesus. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I'll pray that the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I'll come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will live also. And that day... You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. So Jesus, you got to love it. He's telling us, number one, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then at the very end, he says, if you have my commandments and you keep them, you love me. And in between what he says is, I have to be in you. You have to be in me. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. If you want to see the Father come through me, this idea uh, of what it means to be a ruler when it, when it comes to the connection to the temple. Jesus, the archetype, has just uh, raised the bar so high. Sadly, I would say today, uh, there's a lot of us who have more reverence for the buildings and more reverence for the traditions and more reverence for the people that, that sit in positions in those buildings. And we've, we've not really held to what the ruler is trying to teach us here. I'm excited to be actually in the building. Who knows when we finish, there might be some police out there <laughs> waiting for me, but I'm excited to be in the building. But I think God is really reminding us right now that it ain't about the buildings. When you can't go to a building, when you can't have hands laid on you, when you can't go and get absolved of your sins, when you can't go and have specially blessed, blessed uh, communion, what do you do then? What you're supposed to do is realize that Jesus already told us what it means to have a ruler and to have a temple. And many of us are finding that out and, and learning that the hard way, I think. But it's a valuable lesson. And who knows? It might be a lesson that uh, is worth what we're experiencing globally right now in order for Jesus to teach us. Somehow Jesus is able to demand to be worshipped as God right, like some of these other rulers want to, but he's also able to build a temple that every person will always be able to enter into and worship God. He does it in a holy way. He does it in a selfless way. He does it uh, in a way that's focused on others, kind of like Solomon, right? He was focused on others uh, instead of himself, but he does it in a way that no other ruler could, no other ruler would, and no other ruler ever will be able to. So number one, Jesus is the archetype of the ruler and the temple and what that really means. Number two, Jesus is the ruler with the people, right? He's the ruler with the people. If you're still here in the building, say amen. amen. All right. <laughs> Jesus is the ruler with the people. Solomon was concerned for the people and he blessed the people, but he lived beyond the people, right? Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Right? 
Matthew 2 verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Jesus is born uh, king, and Jesus is born to be God with his people. He was not born to King David in a palace like Solomon was. He was born to a teenage mother, to an adoptive father. They moved from house to house in his early years, and his family was hardworking and laboring carpenters. He is the ruler with the people. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us or with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. The ruler with the people is Jesus, and he says that he understands what we're going through. He's been through what we're going through. When rich people tell you that they understand what it means to be broke, they're lying. When people who have never gone without a meal say that they understand what it means to be hungry, they really don't understand what it means to be hungry. When people are sitting in comfort and trying to say, well, we've really got to figure out this homeless issue that we have. They're not with the people. They may care about the people. They may be focused on actually solving the problem, but it's not the same thing as somebody who's actually with the people. It's really hard to find a ruler who's with the people. This is Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus being with the people. It says, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw Peter's wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and served them. Right. So I didn't originally think about it this way. But there are but are there any rulers right now who are going around touching people with fevers? Think about that right now. Jesus finishes preaching, finishes teaching in, in the, uh, the synagogue there in Capernaum. He comes in and he sees uh, his brother that he loves, Peter, and he sees his mother-in-law lying there sick. And Jesus comes up to her, touches her on the hand, gets close to her, embraces her, uh, and then heals this, this fever. I don't know that we have anybody in a ruler uh, or authority role right now who's willing to do that. Jesus was not only willing to die on the cross for people, he's willing to risk his life and his health seemingly daily for people on his way to the cross, right? It's not just like, hey, one day I'm going to die for all you guys, but until then I'm going to stay distant. Or, hey, I can't really be there with you, but I'm going to do things from far away that are really going to help you and make your life better. No, he says, I'm actually going to die on the cross for you, but before I get there on a daily basis, I'm going to risk everything for you because I love you. I'm going to touch you. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to put, put ourselves in dangerous situations time and time again. He wasn't sitting in the palace talking about everything I do, I do it for you. This week, I watched Outbreak on Netflix. And uh, those of you that know this movie, it's about a deadly virus that spreads. And even as I was watching, I was like, man, this is kind of a little bit crazy. I don't know if I should be watching this. Uh, but it was the number one movie on Netflix last week, which means a bunch of the rest of you were watching it too. So don't point the finger. But as I thought about it, 
At the end of this movie, uh, the husband of one of the female doctors, uh, she's infected, and the husband takes off his suit. It's like really dramatic. He takes off his suit, and he comes up close to her, and he rubs her face first, and then he hugs her, and he kisses her, and she's all jacked up and tore up, right? Infected with this, this deadly virus. And it was like a really emotional moment, and, and uh, you could feel it as you're watching the movie. But as I thought about it, uh, I realized that at that point of the movie, they already had the cure. So he wasn't really at risk, right? Like they found the, the, the source of it and they, they created the antivirus and they were already pumping it into her. So they were able to, even if he got it, he was able to have the cure already. And uh, so he wasn't really at risk. But I began to ask myself, what would I do if that was me and Mary, my wife? What would I do if that was me and one of my kids, right? And they're sick and you don't have the cure yet and they're laying there in the bed. They've got all the symptoms. You can see how bad it is. What would I do? What would you do? A scripture came to mind. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 15, verse 13. says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Right? We've heard that scripture before, but, but when you really think about it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm asking myself, Mary, and she's laying there. One of my kids, or all of my kids are laying there, and they're feeling afraid. They're feeling isolated, right? They can't be with people. They can't be touched. And you know, and I know that they're going to be resurrected. I know that I'm going to be resurrected. I'm not saying that we should be reckless, right? Think about this for a second. I'm not telling you in this time of the world that we should be reckless, right? So you shouldn't be going to the gym this week, and if they were open, and going into the steam room with 87 other people and just breathing on each other and sweating on each other. That's reckless, and I don't think that we should be doing that. But at the same time, there's got to be at least a few people in your life where you say, I don't care about the arithmetic, I don't care what uh, the, the guidelines are for how to stay safe and to stay healthy. I don't care what that actually says. What I care about is this person who's there before me. So when Jesus says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down your life for a friend, again, he's not talking about just the ultimate jump off a cliff, hang on a cross. What he's saying is, here's your wife, here's your husband, here's your kids, they're sick. It's going to cost you your life in order to give them one more hug. One more kiss. What do you do? I realize that as a Christian, I should be more afraid of not living well than I am of dying. That's one of the things that it means to be a Christian. You should be more afraid of not living well than you are of dying, right? If you don't take off the mask, if you don't embrace that wife or that husband, if you don't hug those kids, you're not living well. You have another life to come, but you're not living well in this life. If you're afraid of dying to that extent, we've missed it. We've missed what Jesus, the archetype and the ruler, has modeled for us. Can you imagine what that hug and what that kiss would feel like for that wife or for that husband or for those kids? They thought they'd never be touched again. 
the people that they love the most and trust the most, they thought they'd never be embraced by them again. It's got to be worth it to some degree, right? Let's look at our ruler. And this is a not so hypothetical. This ain't outbreak. This ain't going on in my mind. This is not hypothetical. This is him showing us who he is in the same scenarios. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Leprosy is a death sentence. Leprosy requires you to be isolated. They have leper colonies. This person probably hasn't seen another person, been touched by another person. They drop off food if they get any food at a distance, and then they leave, and they have to go and grab that food, right? So here Jesus comes from preaching and being super Christian and blessing people and feeding people, and then this leper is shouting out, Jesus, Lord, if you're willing, you can heal me. He's heard about Jesus. He's heard how Jesus speaks a word and it happens. People have come and said, heal my servant. He's, Jesus says, all right, let's go over there. I'm going to heal your servant. The, the man says, you don't even have to come. I know the authority you have as ruler. Just say a word and my servant will be healed. This leper knows who Jesus is and what he's capable of. And Jesus could have done that here, right? But you know who Jesus is? He's the ruler with the people. He was always going to heal this man, right? Like, when the man asked and he came to the Lord, Jesus was going to heal him. Jesus was going to bless him. He could have done it in any way that he wanted to. But he wanted this man to know that he was with him in his disease. That Jesus was with him in his isolation. Jesus was not just going to be with him in his healing and in his restoration. Right? Hey, leper, I'm your ruler who's with you in your disease. I'm with you in your isolation. I will also be with you in your healing, in your restoration, but I'm not going to jump to that. I'm the ruler who's with you now. So good. It reminds me that Jesus is with us in our darkness. Jesus is with us in our disease right now. Jesus is with us in our fears. And Jesus is with us in our isolation. Social distancing, <laughs> isolation, he's with us. And he does all that before he's with us in our salvation. This is where the archetype and this ultimate ruler really, uh, I think the, the light begins to shine, right? It's one thing if you come into a kingdom and you pledge allegiance, right, and you get your citizenship and then you go and, and volunteer for, for military service and you prove that you are going to be a faithful citizen of that kingdom. It's another thing for the ruler to say, before you even make any of those kind of commitments, I'm going to come to where you are. I'm going to be your ruler with you. I'm going to bless you whether you deserve it or not. I'm going to get all the way involved in your sickness, your disease, and your problems. I'm going to reach out and touch you. Man, that's the archetype. That's the ruler I want. So number one, Jesus is the archetype of the ruler and the temple. Number two, Jesus is the ruler with the people. And number three, he is the ruler with a plan and a purpose. The ruler with a plan and a purpose. 
Jesus as ruler operates from the beginning of every situation with the knowledge of the end of every situation. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9, it says, the Lord says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. I got to read it twice. <laughs> I am God, there's no other. I am God, there's none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. He is the archetype and he is not reassessing things. He isn't going in at halftime to make adjustments. This is what we love about our sports and our coaches. It's like, who can make the best halftime adjustments? They had a plan. The plan is failing miserably. Let's go back in at halftime and say, what do we need to change? What do we need to move? Who needs to go in? Who needs to come out? We've made these adjustments. Let's go and see if maybe we can be victorious. Our God is not like that. He knows the end from the beginning. He has the perfect plan, and he's executing it. Our ruler has not been dealt a hand of cards that he's trying to make the most out of. I don't know if we should be playing cards during this social distancing time since you're touching everything and splitting with each other, but we've been playing cards a lot with, uh, with a few friends. And we're playing this game that I am yet to win and it's driving me crazy. I'm very, very competitive. But the idea is so many times I've said, look at this hand that I've been dealt. There's no chance of me winning. I want to get rid of these cards. I want to start all over again. And sometimes we begin to think that that's how our God is and that's how our ruler is. He just takes what we give him. He takes who we are. He takes the situation of the world. And he says, hey, how can I make the most of this? We've misunderstood who the ruler is. He's not making the most of the cards that he's been dealt. He's the original ruler. He's the archetype. He has a plan. He has a purpose. It's being executed to the T. Think about that for a second. It's being executed to the T. It's not failing short at all. It hasn't skipped a beat. It's not off track. And it doesn't matter how we feel at any given time. He knows how we feel. I know how you feel and I know how I feel. We feel like, Lord, something went wrong. Something's not right. This isn't what you desire. This is not part of your will, but that's just not true. The archetype of the ruler, the authority that Jesus has, uh, it cannot be touched. He says, I'm the only God. There's no other. With that being said, he is not overlooking the individual for the masses. Don't think that what I'm saying is that his plan is too big to be worried about you specifically. Right? I think sometimes when we think about a ruler, right, we look at the nations right now, their job is to solve the problems for the whole nation. You look at a governor, it's for the whole state. You look at a mayor, it's for the whole city. But what they often don't do is focus on the individuals within that nation or the individuals within that state, the individuals within that city, because that's not really their role or we've been convinced that that's not their role. But it's not the same with our ruler. <clears throat> Luke chapter 12, verse 6 says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. 
It's funny how we've been conditioned to believe, we've been taught to believe, that rulers and leaders need to be focused on the big picture. That they can't get focused on the little things. That they can't get tied up on the details. If they're going to fulfill their destiny to lead the nation, if they're going to fulfill their destiny to, uh, to lead the state, if they're going to fulfill their destiny to lead the church, if they're going to fulfill their destiny to lead this family, don't get focused on individuals. Don't get focused on details. Don't get focused on the small things. you got to be big picture visionaries. The archetype of the ruler says, when it comes to big things, I'm saving mankind. It don't get no bigger than that. Right, But then he says, at the same time, I know every bird in the sky right now. I know every person by name. I know the number of hairs on their head. I know the thoughts of their hearts. I'm focused on the details. He's the archetype of a ruler, and we have been following after rulers and leaders that are not leading the way that the archetype is and are not caring the way that the archetype is whether that's in a home, in a workplace, in the church, or in our greater communities. The devil ain't in the details, the ruler is. We get it all backwards, right? The devil's in the details. No, Jesus is in the details. When it comes to plans and purposes, I've learned that most rulers are figuring things out as they go, <laughs> right? They might have what looks like a plan, and they may have written it down and all that kind of stuff, but ultimately, they're figuring it out as they go. If you've been a parent, you for sure know that you're figuring it out as you go. If you've been a business leader, if you've been a pastor, if you've been a ministry leader, you have a plan, but you're figuring it out as you go. With Jesus, it's not that way. He has a blueprint before he even calls us to be involved. Then once we're called... He helps us to build boats and arcs before the flood even shows up. Most rulers are set upon their thrones after winning some kind of miraculous, unplanned, and unscripted victory, right? Like they weren't supposed to win, and now they've been exalted to, to stardom and fame. They weren't supposed to become uh, a ruler, an authority, and a president, or whatever it is, but by this turn of events, the most unlikely thing has happened, and now they are the ruler, Right? Now they're the person in charge. But the archetype, he doesn't operate that way, the way that he rules. Think about the story of, of Moses. When you talk about having a plan and having a purpose, he takes this child that's going to be an orphan, floats him down a river. This child uh, is, is embraced and taken into the palace, raised as a prince for 40 years, an Egyptian prince. Then... Uh, for the next 40 years, the Lord sends him off to be a fugitive murderer shepherd in the middle of the desert somewhere for 40 years. And then he calls him back and says, now I want you to deliver all these people, millions of them, as a man who's been on both sides of the track. That is not just things that are happening. This is a ruler with a plan, a ruler with a purpose. A ruler who's patient and methodical. And how does the Lord do all these things? He does it without removing our character. And he does it without removing our free will from the equation. Right? 
Like he knew who Moses was. He knew who Noah was. He knew who Esther was. He knew who Ruth was, right? He knows who you are. He knows who I am. So we get our character. We get our free will. We get to make decisions, but he is in charge. Proverbs 16, 9 says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You have a plan. You have a desire. You have a passion. You have things that you want to accomplish. But the archetype, the real ruler, ruler is directing your steps like he's directing my steps. Because our uh, ruler operates this way, if you believe this, he, he's, he's able to leave uh, what I'll call hidden blessings along the path of your individual journey, right? He knows where you're going. He knows the end before, uh, from the beginning. So what I believe that he does is along that path, he leaves these hidden blessings for you to discover and to find. When I was a kid, we played Super Mario Brothers. And every so often, there would be a one-up uh, hidden in what seemed to be a random brick somewhere, right? So you'd be running along, you'd jump like Mario, your head hits the brick, and most of them explode. There's no reason for these bricks to be there, but every now and then you'd hit one, and this yellow and green mushroom would come popping out and start rolling, and you go and grab it, and it says, one up, free man, a free life that you get. So why? The makers of the game knew that once you got to a certain point in the game, once you got that far along, you'd probably be on the verge of dying, right? And that at that point, an extra life would mean a lot to you. You start off with these three, you get about halfway through the game, you're down to your last life, and then you get this one up, you get this free man, and you're like, yes. So Jesus, the ruler, he's the maker of all things that pertain to real life. He's hidden these seemingly random blessings along our journey, but once you've been walking with him for a while, you realize that they're strategically placed. They're methodically placed. He's directing our steps. He knows that you're going to get to a place where you're going to really value this one up. <laughs> you're going to really value this blessing that just comes at the right time and in the right place. He knows where you're going. He knows where you're going to be. And if we're willing to listen when he says jump, right? Like, like Super Mario Brothers, you jump and you hit your head in this brick. Oftentimes with the Lord, he'll say, jump. He'll say, run your head into that brick wall. And you'll say, that doesn't make sense. I don't want to jump. I don't want to run into that brick wall. It's going to hurt. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. But once you do it, just like Super Mario Brothers, you realize that actually instead of death and suffering, what I found is health and life and hope. And I didn't even know I needed it as much as I need it right now. It's like when the disciples were fishing. They were fishing their way. They were good fishermen. They knew how to fish. They're out there fishing. They're not catching anything. And then Jesus yells at them, jump. Run your head into the brick wall. Cast your net on the other side of the boat. It doesn't make sense to them. They know what they're doing. They've done it before a thousand times. Yeah, but they've never been in this very moment that they're in. But Jesus knew they'd be in this very moment that they were in. And he knows where the fish are. And because they're willing to listen and they cast it out on the other side, they get blessed. They get a catch that's greater than anything they've ever caught before. It's like this one up, this free life, this hope in a hopeless situation. So let's watch how that works 
with Jesus, the archetype of the ruler, how he's the ruler with a plan and a purpose, right? So we know he created all things. We learned that before. We know that he breathes life into man. Man becomes a living be- breathe, um, being when Jesus breathes this life into him. In the, in the New Testament, after Jesus ri- uh, raises from the dead, he's with his disciples, and it says that he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. That's who he is, right? This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Down goes life number one, <laughs> right? In the, in, in the game of life, right, they just died for the first time. They disobeyed God, and they tried to cover themselves, right? They listened to the enemy, so down goes life number one. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Down goes life number two. (laughs) First life is lost because they, they don't listen to God. They listen to the serpent. The second life is lost because God is actually coming to them and they're running from God and they're hiding from God. And they're down to one life left. Verse nine. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? This is the one up. This is the little mushroom coming across the screen. This is, you need this life. This is the only thing that's going to save you. God says, what happened? Did you do what I told you not to do? How do you even know that you're naked? Talk to me. Don't listen to the serpent. Don't run from me. I'm offering you a free life. Embrace me. Talk to me. Tell me what's really going on. Verse 12, then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. They missed the one up. Instead of repenting, when the ruler called them to himself, they began to justify and rationalize their bad decisions. The lifeline is there. The one-up is there. You don't have to die. I'm going to give you life. Tell me what's going on. Be honest. Repent. He says, it's her fault. She gave it to me. I didn't even want to eat it. I wasn't hungry, and she made me eat it, and that's what happened. And she says, it's not my fault. I was trying to bless my husband. It's the serpent. He deceived me. They miss the one up. Whether they know it or not, whether they believe it or not, they're going to die. And it's for sure now. 
The ruler already had a plan for them to be able to keep living before they made the decision to die. We see that when God doesn't abandon them, but he calls them and he says, I'm still here. All you have to do is come back to me. He, already, he knew what they were going to do because he knows the end from the beginning. He has a plan. It's not just off the cusp, right? He comes to him and says, I'm still here. You're running and I'm following you. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. Look at what we're told about Jesus in this sense. John chapter 3, verse 14 says, Moses lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. This John chapter 3 scripture is parallel to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, scripture. This is the one up versus certain death. Right? God's planned our deliverance before we even know that we've gotten to a place where we're going to die if we don't get a free life. Right? He's already planned the deliverance, even though we don't know that we're dying. Adam and Eve didn't know or they didn't realize or they didn't believe that they were already dead. They were already dying. But God had planned a way for them to be delivered and have life. It's the same thing with Christ. We don't know that we're dying. We don't know that we love the darkness, but he's already, he's the ruler who knows the end from the beginning. He has a plan and a purpose. We love John 3.16, but I think sometimes we forget what God's actually saying. He's saying that the same way I called Adam and Eve to come and to repent and to be restored to life, but they didn't realize that they were already dead. God says, now... I have called everyone for the last time. Remember that, that idea of the temple where Jesus says, I'm going to destroy it for the last time and rebuild it for the last time. God's saying the same thing when he sends Jesus. He says, in the beginning, I came directly to Adam and Eve and I offered them a way back. Throughout history, I've sent prophets and I've offered them a way back. And now for the last time, I've sent my son to offer you a way back. But this is the last time. He is the last temple. He is the archetype. But there's so many of us who don't realize that we're already dead. We're already dying. I remember when I got saved and I realized that I didn't know that I was already dead. Many of my sins, many of the things that I was involved in, I didn't realize that I was already dead and dying until I got saved. Right. And I'm like, man, I was dead. <laughs> I couldn't figure out why all of a sudden I felt so compelled to be saved. I felt so compelled to give my life to Jesus. I felt so compelled to, re to repent, right? I couldn't figure out why that was happening, but I was glad that it did. In Genesis, they hid from God. In John, they ran from Jesus. 
Jesus is the light of the world. They hid within the darkness that they loved. I realized that I actually loved the darkness. The same things I'm reading in the scriptures, I'm realizing is what I was experiencing. Some people experience this. They get confirmation as they see it in the scriptures, right? You're going through something. You want Jesus. You come to Jesus. You get saved. You begin to read the scriptures, and you're like, that's what's happening to me. That's how I was feeling. This is what I've been involved in. Right, And you work that way. Other people experience it the opposite way where uh, they begin to read the scriptures, they begin to come to church, they begin to hear the word, and they say, man, that sounds a lot like what I'm experiencing. And it works the opposite way. Either way, in both cases, Jesus is the one that's able to do this as the ruler. He loves his subjects. He knows they're in from the beginning. And he's calling us to himself. He's calling us to repentance, calling us to salvation. So finally, let's hear it in Jesus' own words. Right? This is just before the John 3.16 passage. This is John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And do you not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus says, you're going to have a life. That life ain't going to make it. You're going to be offered a one-up. You need to take that free life and be born again. He says, don't worry about how I do that. It's like the wind. You can feel it. You know it's there, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. You know it's real. Don't worry about how I do it. I'm the ruler. I do things the way that I want to do them. What you need to be focused on is the reality that without that life, you are going to die. You have to be born again or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. No matter who you are, no matter what you do, if you don't take that life, when the scales of your life and judgment come, you're going to be found wanting. Nobody's going to be good enough. So I want to close. I want to highlight one more of the unique ways that Jesus is the archetype of the ruler and how he stands above all other rulers. The ruler has power and authority. But that doesn't mean that the ruler uses it the way that we think is best, right? What it means to be a ruler is to have power. It means to have authority. But as people, we want the ruler to use that in a particular way. And he doesn't always do that. Jesus is the ruler. He's all powerful. He uses his power and authority in the best way and in the perfect way every single time. He never has to apologize and say, I should have done this differently. Or I wish I had done it another way. He's not that kind of ruler. He's the perfect ruler. This is Mark 4, 36. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. 
And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. They awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Church, right now, the latest winds and waves to come along are the waves and winds of this coronavirus. For many, this is probably the worst storm that they've ever seen. It's turning people's lives upside down. It's turning the whole world upside down, right? And you can see the, the turmoil. You can see uh, some of the fallout. But the most important thing for the disciples is still the most important thing for us today is whether or not Jesus is in the boat. The storms are going to continue to come. Mark my words. This is not the last storm that's going to come. I believe it's going to pass, right? But I believe that another storm is going to come. What matters most is when the storms come, is Jesus in the boat? Are you with the Lord? Is he with you? The storms come to the saved. The storms come to the unsaved. Jesus is going to ask a simple question, which is, why are you more faith fearful than faithful? He's not even talking about the storm. He's just saying, why are you so fearful? Where is your faith? So I want to encourage, I want to challenge the believers this morning to consider your walk so far. Think about this for a second, please. Consider your walk so far and whether or not this is true, that sometimes the all-powerful ruler calms the storms in your life. And other times he watches us fumble around with umbrellas and raincoats. Just think about your, your faith so far and see if that's true. Sometimes he's coming and he says, peace be still, storm stop, calm, calm your life, fix your problem. And other times it seems like he's just sitting there and you've got the umbrella and it's too windy. You're trying to get your raincoat on, but you're still wet. And it seems like he's just watching. That has been my experience, that sometimes he calms the storms. Other times he watches me get wet. I'm not sure what he's going to do with this storm. The world's going through. Um, I'm not sure what he's going to do with whatever personal storms. It's not like just because this coronavirus has come along that that's the only storm. Many of you have personal storms that you're going through that started before this. And I'll probably still be here after this. Who knows? So I'm not sure exactly what he's going to do. But what I do know is that the ruler can do anything he wants. And whatever he decides to do or whatever he decides not to do is the perfect decision. Think about that. The archetype is the perfect example, right? And as the ruler, he has all authority, which means he could calm the storm if he wants to. He could fix the problem if he wants to. He could let the problem remain. He can extend it or shorten it. What I know for sure is that he's capable of doing whatever he wants and whatever he decides to do or decides not to do, it's perfect. It's the right thing. It's the holy thing. It's the best thing. It's going to work out the best for you and the best for others. It may not feel that way but it's true regardless of how it feels. 
Luke 4.25, Jesus says, I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. They rose up and thrust Jesus out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Scripture goes on to say that he just walked through the crowd and went his way. Why is it so important in our time right now what Jesus is saying in that time? Jesus reminds these people in the church, he says, listen, there were widows dying in drought and famine, and I didn't save them all. And I didn't feed them all. He says, when Elijah came, there were lepers, leper colonies and communities. There was a lot of them. And we only healed one. And he was a foreigner. That's why the, the church says they get angry and they take him out. What do you mean this might last? What do you mean we might not get healed? What do you mean we might suffer financial destitution? What do you mean that we're not as important possibly as other countries and cultures? They're irate. This is in the church. And they take him and they're going to throw him off of the cliff. Because he tells them, I have power, I have authority, but I might not use it the way you want me to. Many people are going to use this current epidemic to claim that there's no God. Many people are going to lose loved ones, and they're going to use this current epidemic to hate God. For not intervening if he does exist. They're going to do that because they don't know. They don't know him, and they don't know his word. Many Christians are going to make claims that are not true because we don't understand our own God. We're going to proclaim things and say things and tell people this is why it's happening. This is what God's doing. This is how he's going to end it. This is what he's going to do for the Christians and this is what he's going to do to the non-Christians. But that's not true. And if we do those things, it's because we don't know him and we don't know his word and we don't understand his plans and his purposes. And we don't understand that sometimes he doesn't reveal all that to us. But I know what Jesus is going to do. He'll walk through the crowds and he'll continue on ruling as he sees fit. He's the Holy One. He's the only one with actual power and he knows exactly what's best for everyone. We in scripture are presented with a ruler, not a genie. And we're going to have to give account to that ruler. Philippians 2.10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So fitting on so many levels, right? This idea that, that he's the ruler, he's the authority, everybody's gonna have to bow Worship, confess, but also Paul says, listen, when we were together and I was teaching it and preaching it and we were fellowshipping together and you tried to obey and follow him when we were together, he says, now that we're not together, it's even more important. Yes. 
Work out your own salvation. Church, who knows when we're going to be able to gather again? Who knows when we'll be in the same building again? For all we know right now, even the, the thread might be off and you're not hearing the word, at least not from me. You got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The reality that Jesus, the ruler, knows the end from the beginning is so important right now. He's not surprised by the coronavirus. Our, our rulers in many places are losing their minds. We're searching for cures. We're enacting new laws every day. Every day last week, there was some new law, some update, some change in the direction, right? And they're doing it for good reason. They're trying to save lives, right? That's their hope. We want to save people's lives. But we know, and they know, that they can't make us any guarantees, right? Jesus, on the other hand, as ruler, he promises life. He says, I'll comfort the sick. Sometimes I'll heal, and sometimes I'll just show up until they pass. Jesus says to us, I'm not going to give you a new law for your current situation. I'm going to remind you of the laws that I've already given you because they still hold true. I knew the end in the beginning when I gave them to you. I don't need to change them. What you need to do is follow them and understand them and embrace them. Didn't he say, if you love me, keep my commandments? It's not just about us loving him and keeping the commandments for his sake. It's for our sake. For all we know, they're going to say social distancing next week is not the answer. You actually need to be together for some reason. Jesus ain't like that. I want to follow that ruler, the one who knows where I'm headed, and the one who tells me, I have a plan for you, I have a purpose for you, and I already know the end. I want the ruler who says to confirm all that he's told me, that he's resurrected. He says, just so you know that everything I've told you is true, and that you don't have to fear anything, you don't have to even fear death, I've resurrected from the dead to confirm those things. Everyone who's died from the coronavirus has now bowed before Jesus. They've confessed that he truly is Lord and that he's ruler of heaven and earth. And you know what? Not one of them, when they got there, did Jesus say, did you get tested? Not one of them. When they got to the gate, did Jesus say, did you follow social distancing? He asked them, when you breathed your last breath, were you still living your life? Or were you living that one-up free life that I gave you? Did you let me in? Was I living through you and in you? Did you have the life in you that cannot die? Or were you still living your own way? That's what he wants to know. That's what he cares about. I don't want to see any more deaths, and I know you guys don't want to see any more deaths associated with this virus. I don't want to have to endure what's going to come after the virus. We've been talking about the financial crisis. We've been talking about all of our systems and social programs, all the things that are going to be affected. In many ways, there's needs that have to be met, so don't take this the wrong way, but it's almost like here's a couple thousand dollars so you guys don't think about it. You better think about it. There's going to be a long-term effect of these things, and nobody wants to go through it. It's not going to be fun. But as a Christian, I hope that we'll be actually talking about what matters most. And it's the same thing that mattered before. 
it's Jesus. It's the ruler and whether or not he has authority, whether or not he's a good ruler, whether or not he has our best interest in mind, whether or not he's allowing this to happen um, or if it's out of his control. These are the things we need to be talking about. The reason why we decided to continue our series is because he knew the end from the beginning. He's in charge. So we're going to pray. We're going to worship uh, and let you, guys, let you guys go on with your day. But here's what I'm going to do. Uh, if you're watching or, uh, and you're thinking to yourself about allowing Jesus to come into your heart, what we talked about earlier is that he will, at the same time as you allow him in, he says, you're going to be coming into him. The spirit is going to be alive inside of you. You're going to have this new life. You're going to have this salvation. I'm going to lead us in a, in a salvation prayer so that you, you would be able to do that. After that, we're going to take a few minutes just to worship here. We're going to receive communion here. Uh, but I want to encourage you guys, if you're, if you're home or if you're watching, uh, to pray with whoever you're with. All right. Somebody's there hopefully with you. If you're alone, pray to the Lord. If you're with somebody, take some time after this and, and actually talk to each other and pray with each other. Maybe take communion. You don't have to have bread and wine. You can do it with anything. Break some bread, have some juice, whatever it is, and pray to each other and ask God to remind us that he's the ruler, that he's the authority, that he's in charge, and that he's a good ruler. Um, and then the last thing I'll tell you now before I pray is uh, reach out to people this week. Let them know that you love them. Let them know that you need them. Um, and be a blessing. Let's be the body of Christ. Let's be who he's called us to be and do what he's called us to do. So I'm going to pray. Like I said, first for those who might want to give their life to the Lord right now. That maybe you've been thinking about it for a while. Maybe you've been wrestling with this feeling of guilt or this feeling of doom or this understanding that you're not going further and further into hope and further and further into life, but things seem to be getting worse and less and less hope, less and less life. We want to pray, Lord. We know that you're all knowing, that you're all powerful, Lord, that you've used the, the storms of these people's lives to bring them to where they are right now, to call out to you, Lord. We know that you use these situations and circumstances to do what matters most. You didn't save every leper or heal every leper. You didn't fix every problem for every widow. What you offered them was a new life. What you offered them was salvation, Lord. And the things that were the most difficult for them were actually the things that led them into life. And you knew that. So this morning, we just ask that you would just continue to be who you are and continue to do what you do. That you would save those who would call out to you. The same way that you asked Adam and Eve where they were, the same way, Jesus, when you came, you said all who would come to you would not perish but have everlasting life. So, Lord, we believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. We believe that you died for our sins. We believe that you rose from the grave and that you confirmed that we can have salvation and forgiveness of sins and that we can conquer death. 
We ask you right now to forgive us of our sins. We repent, Lord. Unlike Adam and unlike, unlike Eve, Lord, we're not going to run from you. We're not going to blame it on others. We're not going to make excuses for what I've done, what we've done, Lord. We just come to you humbly and say, you're the only holy one. I've lied. I've cheated. I've stolen. I've hurt. I've withheld. I've done so many things that I can't even recount, Lord. But your blood is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient for me. Your grace is sufficient for all. Once and for all, Lord, the temple has been destroyed and it's been restored in you. You've made a way, Lord. Once and for all, you've come to seek and to save that which is lost. Lord, I pray for those that may have given their life to you, Lord, that you would give them confirmation, that you would give them a peace that surpasses understanding, that you would give them a desire to be in your word, to be changed, transformed, and healed, Lord. Lord, I pray right now for those who are suffering globally, Lord, that you would meet us where we are, that you would overcome this fear with love and with faith, Lord God, that your sons and daughters, Lord, would be leading that charge of trusting you, trusting you in our pain, trusting you in our job losses, trusting you in our suffering, Lord God, trusting you in our homes, Lord, where our kids are not at school, that we would be leading the charge of what it means to have a peace that surpasses understanding, Lord, that we would be reaching out to others to be uh, 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 conduits for your hope to reach others, Lord God, that we would be in your word, that we would be faithful, that we would be prayerful, Lord God. Jesus, Jesus. This is not the end, Lord. This is just another step along the path that you have laid out blessings for those that would follow you, Lord. Give us life. You said that the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy, but you've come that we would have life and that we would have life more abundantly, Lord. We're praying, Lord, not just to make it through this situation or circumstance, Lord, but that we would thrive, that we would have abundance, Lord God. Because you promised it, not because we just want it, but because you promised it. You've laid abundance along this path that you've called us to walk, Lord, for such a time as this. We love you, Lord. Meet us this night. Meet us this week. Meet us as we go forward, Lord. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know who our ruler is. We love you, and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was nowhere you came to my rescue From the grave I've been raised When I needed a savior to save me Jesus, you made a way For listening. The Way would love you to visit our church at 451 West Lambert Road, Suite 204 in the city of Brea. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.thewaybrea.com or you can download our church app by visiting your app store and searching The Way Brea. Be blessed.